Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen, and today my guest is Dennis Winko. Dennis is truly one of the visionaries within the entire space industry uh, and is widely regarded as sort of Mr. Moon. He's got decades of experience in computer and aerospace industries. He's the founder and CEO of Skycorp Incorporated and Green Trail Energy, as well as the co-founder and CTO Orbital Recovery. Key areas of expertise include solar electric propulsion, satellite and spacecraft design, advanced mission planning, lunar surface operational scenario development, and he has patents in space logistics systems, including one licensed by Orbital ATK. He has worked for many leading age companies in computer, artificial intelligence, and document management areas since the 1980s, including vector graphics, symbolics, and alpha rel. He led the development, construction, and testing of microgravity payloads for sounding rockets and the space shuttle at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, including the first Macintosh flown on the space shuttle and SEDSAT-1, the first non-NASA spacecraft built in Alabama. He led the design and development of the world's first commercial satellite servicing system at Orbital Recovery, led the Lunar Orbiter Image Recovery Project, and restored and digitized images from NASA's Lunar Orbiter Program. He's the first to, in history to rescue and operate a spacecraft, ISEE-3, from interplanetary space. He's been a keynote speaker at Apple Worldwide Developer Conference, as well as uh, done a Google Tech Talk, and Partly the subject of this podcast, he is the author of Moonrush about the developing the lunar resources, including dozens of like scientific articles. He's been featured on a number of documentaries, programs, and news articles on advanced space activities, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah, uh, some of us call that a confirmed lunatic, but you know. <laughs> well, how would you describe what you do and what your role is in the space ecosystem? Part evangelist part ditch digger, part advisor to many, many good people, including yourself and folks that we all know and respect. If you ever saw the movie, the one with Bill Murray, where he kept going back in time, you know, he just said, well, you know, maybe God has just been around so long, he knows everything. Well, that's kind of how I am in space. So uh, uh, do a lot of stuff. And I've been quite fortunate to have been mentored by some of the giants of the first generation of space people like Dr. Ernst Stuhlinger and Conrad Dannenberg of the German rocket team, Gordon Woodcock from Boeing, Dr. Lundquist, University of Alabama Huntsville, just an amazing cadre of people. And I'm from that last generation, unfortunately, that was actually actively mentored by that post-World War II generation that were just absolute giants from the engineering teams, management, visionaries, and all. And, you know, um, proud to have helped pick up the torch and working now to help uh, pass the torch on to uh, the next generation while still banging away at what I can. I'm not sure if it was where we met, but certainly one of our early interactions was with the uh, National Defense University Space Power Theory Project, where they were trying to develop a space power theory. And you wrote a, uh, I think, a very influential chapter of that about economic flanking. And I wanted to start sort of at the top with why do you see or how do you see space as important to U.S. strategy and ambitions? Well, and, and that chapter really helped in a way. It was chapter eight of Pete Lutz's uh, book, Toward a Theory of Space Power. And I got to interact with just a tremendous group of military officers, thought leaders, people from all over the world. And the premise there, chapter, is that all military power, whether it be sea power, land power, air power, space power, is fundamentally based on economic power. And our friends from across the uh, Western Pond certainly get that and have spent the last 25 years undermining our economic power so that... Uh, one day they could possibly triumph militarily. And so, but looking back at history, and we started out in that chapter with the premise that in uh, 
in Greece. In the uh, 4th century BC, a rich vein of silver was discovered. And it was decided in the Athenian Vox Populi or the popular uh, assembly, what do, we, what do we spend this money on? Do we give it as, as a boon to the people or do we build a fleet? And Pericles argued convincingly, and we wouldn't be here today in Western civilization had he not done so, that that money should be used to build a fleet that was a fleet that defeated the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. It kind of really crystallizes in that, that one action about economic power. Now, here on the earth, in most wars in history have been over resources, whether it's human resources or material resources. And today we live on a, on a small planet. It's a small planet. The planet has gotten smaller over the last several decades with the rise of China, India, many powers around the world. Africa is starting to come into its own. Each of these countries want resource. And rather than to be in a situation where we're going to fight each other over a set of limited resources, why don't we, why don't we go outward and look at the resources that are out there? And thanks to NASA and many other science agencies around the world, we now know that our solar system, things that we didn't know in the beginning of the Apollo era space age, <laughs> that the moon is rich in material resources, and many of those resources come from asteroids that have hit the moon. Just like here on the Earth, some of our richest metallic resources, whether it's Sudbury in Canada, $100 billion worth of nickel has been pulled out of what was an asteroid impact. South Africa, platinum group metals comes from the Marinsky Reef, which is part of an artifact related to the, what's called the Vredefort complex, which is was an asteroid impact. And so many of the metals and the valuable metals that we mine here on Earth come from off planet. But we've come so far. We know so many things about the moon, what the moon's water resources, the metal oxides on the moon. And we've done work and I've done work. And my book, Moon Rush, was about obtaining the metallic resources, whether it's nickel, iron, platinum group metals, cobalt. Well, guess what? We're talking about cobalt almost every day right now. And I just read an article yesterday about cobalt in Tennessee, of all places. Different mines for different metals that we're now starting to, hey, we, you know, we're in this global competition and our friends from across the Western Pond are now dominating rare earth metals and the Russians and the South African dominate platinum group metals. And we need to look beyond this kind of fight that otherwise is inevitably coming. And there's a great NASA science mission. It's about to go to Psyche, which is a, a metallic asteroid. It's the largest that we know of in the solar system. It's 216 kilometers long, 180 kilometers thick, and 80 kilometers wide. Uh, that's enough metal to supply civilization for 10,000 years. There are so many more resources in terms of accessibility, because here on Earth, not only do we have the problem of obtaining the metals and other valuable resources themselves, there are some of them in areas of the world that are politically dodgy. There, uh, And I, I literally, I was just on a teleconference today, is that there are multiple costs to extraction of resources. There's the cost, the resource extraction itself, capital and operating costs. There's political cost of dealing in a lot of these countries. We all talk about today the terrible conditions in the Congo for cobalt, for batteries, for electric vehicles. We don't want that. Or the rare earth metals that are poisoning Mongolia today that China is pulling out and, you know, things like that. And then also possibly the pollution costs. Mining is the most polluting things that humans do. And so if there's a way to do it off planet, let's, you know, let's see that. And that's what I've spent pretty much the last 25 years on at various levels of intensity in that particular effort. And so we want to tie that to our economy on the earth and there's enough out there for everybody. There's not just one asteroid. There's not one cycle. There's 6 million of them. We know from asteroid impacts on the moon and on the earth that about 3 to 4% of all the impacts are metal objects. Well, extrapolate that out to the asteroid belt, we have millions of them. We don't know of all of them yet because the we haven't done the spectral surveys, but we know they're out there because of what we know about what's hit the earth and what's hit the moon. So 
rather than, you know, think about how much a war costs. And, and Peter, you're a warfighter. You flew around the world in an airplane that cost hundreds of millions of dollars just as a transport plane. You were a transport plane pilot. Think of, you know, how, you know, investing resources. Where do we invest our, res- our, our national capital? Do we invest it in war? And, you know, we're worried that we might be getting in one next week in Ukraine. Do we invest in these kinds of things or do we invest in helping to, as Adam Smith liked to say, grow the pie? rather than fight over the pie that we already have. And so this was kind of the genesis of that. And so I laid some of the economic foundations. I talked about what we have, and, and I want to lead you into your next question. But I think this year, and, and it's this year, something is going to happen this year that takes everything that we've talked about in the past 25, 35, 45 years, 50, 60 years in space development, is going to drop the cost of it by a very large fraction and enable many, many things that we have spent decades talking about, but they were too expensive to do. And I take it you were alluding to the SpaceX Starship orbital launch. Is that what you're uh, alluding to? Absolutely. Elon and what the Starship can do. Uh, and, and I just had this discussion uh, very recently with one of your mentors that you introduced me to in Montgomery. We'll, we'll leave his name uh, unspoken right now, but that the Starship is optimized as a low Earth orbit vehicle, carry very large payloads to low Earth orbit, very inexpensively. And it literally changes the equation as much as the DC-3 or the 707 or the 747 change the equation on air travel. And you, let's talk about why, you know, why do you think that is? And just what is the scale of the, of the difference? Like how, how big a deal is Starship in your opinion, not just qualitatively, but what are the numbers that make it a big deal? Well, it's just, in my opinion, it's as transformational as Robert Fulton steamship. It's as transformational as the transcontinental railroad because what it does it provides a means to inexpensively get very large payloads into low earth orbit and uh, i read a, a forward there was a book written in 1965 by the head of the american chemical engineering society a fellow by the name of neil ruzik and he wrote a book called the case for going to the moon and in the forward to this book there was a statement by arthur c clark that i want to paraphrase here is that and this was in the middle of the space race is that we're all talking about a race to the moon right now but the real activities happen after we get there and we aborted that in the 1970s. But with the Starship being able to go to low Earth orbit, very large payloads, we are now able to take a, a second, let's call it technological approach that is now called OSAM, but we call it more colloquially own orbit assembly, own orbit manufacturing, that we can put together very large space vehicles or very large amounts of fuel that will lower the cost of getting to higher orbits, getting to the moon and going beyond by at least minimum one order of magnitude, possibly two. I think, and and we've tossed this number around for decades, it's about $100,000 a kilogram to put payload on the lunar surface. Think of that if we drop that price to $10,000, maybe even $1,000 a kilogram to the lunar surface. Then we're able to emplace on the moon, on the lunar surface, power supplies, solar arrays, reactors, uh, advanced technical equipment for resource extraction, resource processing, manufacturing on the moon that starts to set up what is called in in the industrial world, a virtuous cycle. And that virtuous cycle going toward the moon with some lag because we've got to learn how to actually work up there rather than how we think we're going to work up there. But then to use the resource, and and we talk about lunar resources all the time, and lunar resources is the water, it's the metal oxides and all. But to me, just as valuable, if not more, the resource is the vacuum on the moon because this vacuum 
And literally, I just had this discussion with a uh, an industrialist about a about an hour before this podcast. Is that to attend to the minus twelve tour uh, vacuum on the moon enables an amazing diversity of industrial processes on a continuous basis that we can only do here on the Earth at best as a batch basis. And in your world, uh, for like the F-35, the F-22, the turbine blades, many of the highest tech parts metallurgically of those fighters are all built in high vacuum. They're very expensive. Imagine if you were to, to be able to reduce that cost by an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude. All of this becomes possible with the advent of the SpaceX Starship and its ability to place large payloads in the low Earth orbit, which then then be leveraged to move outward to the moon and beyond. Just to be kind to my fuzzy major policy listeners, translate engineering speak of order, when you say one to two order of magnitude, what, what does that mean? To the normal person. Well, uh, and I want to use an analogy or a couple of analogies. One is Henry Ford, when he envisioned and put into place the production line, brought down the cost of an automobile by an order of magnitude. Before then, automobiles were hand built and there was some automation, but very, very little. And they were expensive. Henry Ford brought not only, he did two things that were very interesting. He brought the cost of the vehicle down to about $300, which was still fairly expensive back then. But at the same time, he raised the wages of his workers because he wanted his workers to be able to afford to buy his car. So the industrial productivity transformation that was brought about by the production line enabled that. Now let's take and shift this into the into the air. Pre-World War II, we had international air travel. It was very expensive. It was very time consuming. It was the the Pan American Clipper, but and a few rich people flew uh, flew that and uh, business people that had an urgent need to fly around the world flew that and it was an ongoing business but it was very expensive, kind of like what we're doing right now with SpaceX and the Dragon and carrying people up to the International Space Station or the Inspiration4 mission. But when after, after World War II and this enormous, probably largest capital investment spree in the history of mankind toward the production of high-performance aircraft, you know, we built 10,000 apiece bombers and 20,000 fighters and, you know, millions of tanks. And we built all this stuff. And so what happened post-World War II, the price of an airframe dropped by an order of magnitude compared to, you know, if you look at the performance. Meaning tenfold, right? One-tenth the cost. Tenfold. Dropped by Drop from $10 to a dollar. So an order of magnitude. And so that enabled, again, a more virtuous cycle of air travel. And then with jet engines, which was paid for by the government, we had jet travel. And then, you know, finally it got to the point when Boeing built the 737 that these airlines, like Southwest Airlines, my favorite airline, air travel from 1970 to 1990 increased uh, almost a hundredfold, two orders of magnitude, because now I could buy, you know, I could go and fly to Vegas for a weekend. So we're already seeing, you know, a, a bit of this on the other end in terms of the, the increase in scale of activity. You know, you you talked in your book, very prescient book decades ago about the coming moon rush. Well, now we actually have a bit of a moon rush. You know, there are a f- staggering number of missions planned to the moon. Can you talk a little bit about that and what's going on? I got to be careful here because I'm actually signing a, a contract this week with an undisclosed customer fly payload to the moon next year. And the CLIPS contractors, which is one of the things that you're pointing to, that is still very much on the R&D side. And, and they're all flying either a Falcon 9 or a Blue Origin or something like that. Those are still, as one of my ex-bosses used to call it, science projects. The transformation is coming to when Elon is able to put a starship in the low Earth orbit and then refuel it and then refuel it again and drop 100 tons on the surface. Now, I really like what's happening with the clips 
missions. They're very cool. They are prospecting missions. And for example, there's one going to the Lunar South Pole. Very cool. There's one going to the IM3 mission, for example, which is was just awarded to Intuitive Machines, is going to one of my favorite places on the moon, a place called Reiner Gamma. Because Reiner Gamma has the strongest magnetic field on the moon, possibly intense enough to deflect damaging solar radiation to where you can put a base there and have a lot less risk for people. But there's still science projects. I want to put 100 tons at the lunar pole. I want to drop something like that. With that, we're able so to power supplies and all kinds of cool stuff. All right. And so let's talk about when we can put 100 metric tons on the poles of the moon, what's going to happen? And then why the poles? Well, let's start with the why first. And the earth is tilted over 23 and a half degrees. And because of that, we have seasons. You know, it's darker in the winter. It's lighter in the summer. On the moon, the moon that orbits the Earth is not inclined or is, doesn't lean over like the Earth does. The moon is only in, inclined, uh, tilt is only three degrees. So what that does is in the lunar polar regions, there's areas of high sunlight. Like here on the Earth, you get six months of sunlight in the polar regions and six months of darkness. Well, on the moon, you get... It's over an 18-year cycle, but it's somewhere on the order of 80 to 98 to even in a very few areas, 100% sunlight. Why this is important is if you think about the, for any industrial activity, first thing we got to have is power. And, you know, while nuclear power is really cool and we, we really need it for the future, but if we're going to start and where we start is with solar power, and we can put solar power on the surface. And uh, I've run some of the numbers. I mean, you're only going to have like, you know, 50 hours of darkness out of a 708 hour month on the moon. And so that's really cool. And that means that I don't have to have a nuclear power supply. My batteries are much smaller. And so I can in place like, you know, what that 100 mission, I could easily put a megawatt worth of solar arrays on the moon. I could put habitats, multiple habitats. I could put rovers. I could put all kinds of stuff on the moon in a single landing. Now, practically speaking, probably what we're going to have to do is land some smaller landers first with conventional like Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy to prepare a landing, a landing site for the Starship. And it architecturally forces you into a base mode on the moon rather than what they like to call sorties. The Apollo missions were sorties. We landed in multiple places on the moon. But for a starship style architecture, we're going to have bases. We will start in the polar regions and then we will extend to other areas of the moon of interest, either economically or scientifically. But being able to put a megawatt on the moon, I can immediately start doing large-scale processing of lunar resources to create oxygen for propellant, uh, metals for industrial processes, build roads, all kinds of stuff. And it is, I mean, if you take a look at the Apollo lunar lander, it could land maybe, including the humans, maybe 2,000 kilograms on the surface, or, or so that's two tons versus the Starship's 100 tons. Again, we're talking two orders of magnitude here, difference. And start getting to orders of magnitude, it gets interesting. And that's what we have with Starship. And I think very soon after the first NASA missions, we're going to have private missions to the moon, just because the scale of cost is now such that we can do that. So let's talk here for a minute, <clears throat> because you know many people start with some skepticism of, hey, the moon, we've been there, done that. It it's a dry rock, you know, the, there's nothing to learn there. You know, why would we need to go? And you've, you've hinted that there might be some economic rationale, but, you know, what is valuable enough to go to the moon, uh, spend all this energy and logistics to get there? You mentioned briefly that you could make some metallurgical parts, but is there a broader picture? What else is on the moon that we might want to go well, after? You have to take the broad approach. Every, you know, basically the skeptics are going, well, there's no chunks of gold there uh, or something like that. And, you know, Elon 
many years ago, he's now changed his mind, said, well, if I found crack cocaine on the moon, uh, it would cost too much to bring it back. The Starship is changing that equation, but all economics is based upon, can I build something and transport it to the customer at a price the customer is willing to pay? So it's not one single resource like some of our friends, and you know them as well as I, focus on the water. Oh, we're going to go mine water and we're going to sell it and we're going to make trillions of dollars. No, you're not. There are people that go, well, you know, or, and you know, even I have said this that uh, you go and get it, find a big uh, nickel iron asteroid and you can process it. Well, yeah, but at the same time, it is a it is a diversity of activities on the moon, not only for products that service the earth, but products that service space itself. For example, and, and again, I just had this uh, discussion with someone whose PhD thesis is in high vacuum processing. If I have a 10 to the minus 12 tour vacuum, I can do metal alloys of the type that we can't do on the earth. On a very, 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 very good day, on the earth, we can get perhaps 10 to the minus 11 tor. And so you go, okay, we'll get it on the earth. Things are much easier to do on the earth, but those are batch processes and it's ex extremely expensive and contamination is very, very much a, a factor there. But there are many alloy combinations that can be done in high vacuum. You can even do vacuum welding very simply in space or on the moon. And you want to build, you know, Elon talks about flying the starship to the moon, but think about building actual, and I'll call them true spaceships, spaceships to where you can have uh, rotating structures to where you can have gravity, because we all know, those of us who are really in this, and it's whispered that, you know, we really do need gravity. Uh, the astronauts who come back from the space station after being up there a year or two, or a year, a lot of them have issues. And there are medical issues involved. And the same thing with radiation. But if I can build a vehicle, say in lunar orbit, that has rotation, has, oh, I've got propellant there as well. I can put radiation shielding. Uh, and it's being built in space. So it's not built like we build it here on the Earth. And I've been talking about this for 30 years now, that every spacecraft we've ever built on the Earth 75% of the cost and effort that goes into designing and building that, uh, say a spacecraft in geo-orbit that lasts 15 years or a space station that lasts 30 years, most of the work, design work and cost goes into designing it for an environment it sees for 10 minutes, which is launch. So if we can build things in space, we can start to do things differently. We can build really big antennas. We can build really big, you know, right now, everybody's all gaga about the James Webb Telescope. And I think it's really cool. And there's been such an amazing outpouring of love for this telescope that has a 6.5 meter aperture. Well, we designed one for DARPA in 2003 just the test version of it was 14 meters in diameter assembled in orbit. And we would assemble one, we could assemble one in geosynchronous orbit. There's 50 meters in diameter in what's called optical diffraction limited, which means it can see in the optical frequencies, which really James Webb can't. James Webb can barely see into the optical frequencies. And it was funny at the time when we did this, it was for persistent surveillance on the earth because you know that's what DARPA does. And then the National Reconnaissance Office came in and said, no, you can't do any work on designing antennas that look at the ground. So I told Dr. Joe Garcia and Tony Tether at the time, who was at DARPA, and I said, well, hey, we can turn it around and we can put multiple pixels on continents of Earth-like planets 300 light years away. Wouldn't that be cool? And so it just opens up, let's call it opens up the design space, just like moving from wooden ships to metal ships completely opened up the design space on how you design ships or when we went from wooden airplanes to aluminum airplanes. It completely changed how we were able to build airplanes. And you're going to see the same revolution when we're able to design and build things with lunar resources on the moon and in orbit around the moon, which you're in vacuum the whole time. So you don't have to worry about this pesky atmosphere that you got to fly through to get out to space. So it's it's literally is going to change everything. Now, Dennis, you've been a frequent critic of uh, 
of our national space program, its destinations, its plans, its architecture. What do you think we have right and what do you think we have wrong? Well, NASA, you know, uh, there's, there's a story in the 1980s, Lou Rockwell, the founder of Rockwell International, went to NASA and said, I want to buy, I want to build another space shuttle. I want to build an extra one. You're building four right now. I'll build an extra one on my own dime. I just want access to the pads and facilities. And by doing what we're doing, the utilization of all your hardware is going to be a lot better. And I just want to fly it privately. I want to fly it commercially. I want to do a lot of stuff. NASA not only shut him down, they took a stake, drove it through his heart, cut his head off, and sent the body parts around the country as a warning to the next generation of entrepreneurs. Well, we're a generation down the road now from the 1980s, and NASA is flying a privately developed spacecraft called the Dragon, built by SpaceX. And it was developed, again, order of magnitude less expensive than its uh, aerospace industrial complex competitor for seriously less money than, uh, and I'll, I'll use the name, the Boeing, C- I, I don't remember the name of uh, their vehicle, their human vehicle, still has yet to fly successfully. Two years after SpaceX is, is providing service and has flown private crews into space, you know? So NASA uh, embraced and, you know, a lot of us had something to do with this because, you know, we went and, and walked the halls in Congress and sung the praises of commercial space and successive administration or successive Congresses, both Democrat control and Republican thought, yeah, OK, we'll we'll, we'll support this. And, and they did. And we have it. And then Kathy Luters, God bless her, little pee-picking heart, picked the starship. She didn't really have any choice considering how things were presented to the HLS team. But now we have a private lunar lander that can carry 100 tons that is not built by the FARs, by the Federal Acquisition Regulations. It's privately built. And we'll have private customers, of which I hope I'm one. Very soon. And so we live in a different world from the NASA side. The NASA science side has really not changed. And the, let's call it, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't want to be partisan and I don't mean to be, but the previous NASA administrator, you and I both knew him. We knew him before he got in. And Congressman Bridenstine, did he retire out as a captain? Yeah. So he was a jet fighter pilot. He really wanted to do the kinds of things that we want to do. And he actually referenced Paul Spudis in my book and in some of his lectures and Vice President Mike Pence and uh, the National Space Council uh, led by Scott Pace, God, you know, uh, a right-wing Republican with kind of a pretty center-left Democrat on the National Space Council. Scott Pace was absolutely fabulous. And we made a lot of progress then, and some of that is continuing. Bill Nelson is, is you know, God bless his little pee-picking heart. He's got to find space when he was a senator, of course. And so he's a NASA fan, and we have people like Bavia Law and, and some good people who really want to do the right thing. So, you know, the ball is rolling in the right direction, and NASA's SLS program, they're going to launch this year, and we want them to be successful, but the SLS, there's a 99.9% chance that the SLS will be the very last government-designed launch vehicle in history. That's historic, and this goes back to something, and Peter, and you and I have talked about it, and we've, I've had it in many papers, so it goes back to um, the path not taken by the United States in 1960, and that election that brought in John Kennedy and LBJ, that if Nixon had gotten in, one of his advisors was a fellow by the name of Ralph Cordner from General Electric, and it would have been a much more entrepreneurial space program even then, because, and again, and I'll wrap that part of it up, there was a memo, it was a, uh, a white paper, classified white paper put out by Robert McNamara and James Webb in 1961, April of 1961, that decried the, the, the growing number of entrepreneurial space companies 
that we're taking skilled engineers from the big contractors and thinning out the talent pool for these big companies. Can you imagine what would have happened had those entrepreneurial space companies, and one of them is right up in Huntsville, Alabama, that eventually became uh, started out as a company named Spacecraft Incorporated, then SCI became one of the largest contract manufacturing corporations in the world in electronics, and is now Sanmina. It is a global conglomerate. What would have happened had we had that entrepreneurial spark leading the way to space in the 1960s, rather than the government dominated and then government tossed away like an old rag used uh, of Apollo? So you've been eloquent on sort of laying out what you think is the right bargain and roles between government and the private sector. You know, what do you see the right mix being? Who, Who does what and who doesn't do what? Well, And that's a very good question because there is a tendency, and this tendency is being executed on right now by certain people, to try to do it all in space, to try to dominate launch, to try to dominate in space, to try to dominate everything. But one of the things that I see, and I'm not going to name any companies' names, but there is a limitation in, in people to start with that are available to do things like this, who want to do things like this, uh, a lot of these companies are having problems hiring people. And I'll tell you one, it's a mid-tier company. They've got 300,000, uh, not 300,000, 300 engineering requisitions out right now they can't fill. And so having, but what happens is when you have, let's say company A saying, I'm going to build a rocket and I'm going to build a moon base. I'm going to build this and I'm going to build that. And I'm going to build the other. For some, it dissuades the investment pool that might invest in another company doing these kinds of things. It, it doesn't make it insurmountable, but right now, the unfortunate tendency I see is that People are trying to do everything and when they should try to do what they're really good at and then work to build an ecosystem. We need to be working diligently to build an ecosystem of companies doing things. And we have some some good starts at that. We have people like my friends at OrbitFab or even, God bless their little pee-picking heart, Northrop Grumman with the MEV, which is the, the patent that I had sold to Orbital ATK. They've actually entrepreneurially put an own orbit servicer in geo orbit and it's making money commercially in space. So, you know, things have changed, but we need to, as Starship comes operational, I hope that there's going to be a pricing plan and scheduling and everything that is, and I, I, and I know Elon has said this, that, you know, the, the Starship needs to fly every week or every couple of weeks. And we're more, we're way in favor of that. And we have ways of filling that up. And so these are the things, and and this is a conversation I had with Elon way back in 2003, when he started SpaceX, we sat down, spent several hours one day. I said, Elon, because he wanted to bring down the cost of launch. I said, Elon, this is Falcon 1 era. I said, if the Falcon 1 was free, today. You would fly off the backlog of every satellite that needs to go to space in about six months. And then what do you do for three years while the world's trying to catch up to you? So I think this is a critical, critical thing is that we need to work to help fill up that manifest to help Starship be successful. Do you see that as within the government's purview to to do that? No, I I don't. I I see that the government, and again, I'm going to go back to a really big philosophical note that I do all the time on the internet when we're talking about such things, is that in the preamble to the Constitution, it says that the role of government is to provide for the national common defense but promote the general welfare. Government cannot, and most of the missteps of our government in the past half century have been the government trying to provide for the general welfare and not promote it. 
And, and what I mean by the word promote is to do things, and, and we talked about this many times before, the zero G, zero tax, you know, tax incentives uh, for the, all of the risk capital that's going into in-space companies, uh, lunar companies, things like that, to create, to help shift the risk reward calculation, the net present value calculation of investors and customers in the space arena because as we have seen with SpaceX and with other players, when companies are given, companies come up in a different manner that aren't coming out of the requirements-driven uh, military-industrial complex culture, they come up with different solutions, different designs. And, and I just read something this week, the most productive automobile manufacturing factory in America is right up the street here in Fremont called Tesla because he started from scratch going, how do we do this differently? How do we do this better? And this is something that, you know, right now our friends from across the Western Pond are throwing lots of money at launch companies right now. They're going to throw lots of money at space companies. And we need to not the government necessarily throw money, but to enable the investment ecosystem that sees space even though it's high risk, to be high reward, which shifts their metrics toward putting more money in. And this past year, more money than ever has gone into space. I think it's something like $43 billion. Oh my God, let's double that, let's triple it. Let's talk concretely about what is within the hands of this administration and this Congress to do. How, what power, what, what things could they actually do that would shift this value function that would enable the, the promotion? The enablement, uh, uh, yeah. The enablement, right? Bottom line, in either legislation or executive order or well, policy legis or- Legislation, you know. and this is the same legislation that was originally introduced in the House in 2001 that actually passed the House but didn't pass the Senate because they ran out of time that year. It's called zero G, zero tax. If you're doing things in space that are different than the, let's call it the existing businesses of communications and remote sensing, and you have a company doing something in space that you remove all taxation, all profit tax from these companies, and you remove capital gains tax from the investors. And so you have a situation, you only do it, you don't do it forever, you do it for 10 or 15 or 20 years, and you do it in a manner that really, really allows ca the capital calculus to shift. And the, the argument against it way back at the, in, uh, the day was that it would cost the treasury $10 billion a year. We're going, where? There wasn't any companies doing that. Now, SpaceX is doing it now with the Dragon, but at the same time, even that, that's not, that's not much tax money. There wasn't any companies at that time. And they're still really, I mean, if you just take all of SpaceX's non-communications, non-launch vehicle revenue, it's probably $100 million a year. So, you know, even if that was pure profit, it's $35 million or today with today's corporate tax rate, $21 million in, in taxes. But the, the amount of money, take a look right now, $43 billion going into the more traditional things. What if that was 10 times the amount or five times the amount because the investment calculus has shifted? We would move out so fast in space. And yes, there would be a lot of scammers and the SPACs or, you know, some of the, this would be the counter argument today. Well, the SPACs have underperformed. Well, yeah, you know, not all of the SPACs are actually companies with, uh, there's a because there is a difference between a business plan and a business, and some of the SPACs are going to fail. And you know, which ones there are, I'm not going to comment on that. But at the same time, the SPACs were created and the space SPACs were created as a methodology to, to reach public capital markets. So there is an appetite for that, and, and for national security. And, and, and you know this, you're deeply involved in this, and the Space Force's budget is minuscule compared to the, the rest of the services, and even the Air Force space budget is constrained. But just think of the capabilities that are being developed by the commercial and private vendors. And, and Peter, you know that I wrote 
uh, paper for the Joint Staff about in space resiliency and avoiding a space Pearl Harbor. If we have assets spread all throughout cislunar space, it makes the space Pearl Harbor impossible. So there are national security, there's economic, there's, there's job creation, education, all positive that would come from like a zero G zero tax type bill, investment tax credit bill. And I have a copy of the last one we did in ProSpace on my uh, website, on my blog. So zero G, zero tax is, is one idea. What else is within this, you know, well, what, what could be done to make the pour gasoline on this fire? Well, there are, you know, right now you have entities like the Defense Innovation Unit that they, they bring government money in as kind of seed corn, and they have a, an excellent uh, uh, multiplier rate, 20 to 40 times the amount of money DIU puts in, private industry has been putting in. But DIU has acted as kind of a technical vetter. They've acted as an enabler, and they've acted as a bridge between the government and private capital out here in Silicon Valley. To increase those types of activities across the board, AFWorks is trying to do that. SpaceWorks is trying to do that, but these none of these guys really have much of a budget. It's in the single-digit millions. But there was something, and I only read about this recently, in the early 1930s, and this is even before the Roosevelt administration, it was in the Hoover administration, but it was continued by the Roosevelt administration. They paid for first production copies of um, aircraft. And like the, uh, the B-17, which was the Boeing 399 or something like that, it was one of the winners. But there were other companies that were building all-metal, multi-engine airplanes that, you know, some of them became like the P-40 Warhawk or the P-47 uh, Thunderbird that, that carried us into the beginnings of World War II. <clears throat> but it was, as a mean, one, it was creating jobs in, during the Great Depression. But at the same time, it was helping to bring these technological capabilities on board. And there were many of them that failed. And only some of them succeeded, like the B-17, like the Boeing 399, or the, you know, what eventually became uh, some commercial aircraft. You know, commercial aviation was truncated during the war, you know, blah, blah, blah. But right after the war, the fruits of all that investment in the 1930s and then the productive capacity during the war bore fruit. Now, while we probably don't want to throw that much gas on the fire, that's kind of like throwing a nuke on a, on a frog you want to kill. But to pay for, let's call it, you know, let's say we want to do you know, uh, like the MEV, that was a completely commercial mission to service an Intelsat satellite. And the government is paying for some of these geo kind of snooping vehicles. But there's a lot of others like laser communications or, well, and, and DIU's funding this. And to talk about my own project is that we won one of the uh, contracts for multi-orbit vehicle logistics. But DIU can't pay for it. And it is, you know, we're having some success in the private market raising funds for this type of vehicle. But there's a lot of stuff we need to be doing. And if we are, as some people speculate in a pre-war period, which I hope we're not, whether we are or not, investment in some of these capabilities, whether it's on orbit servicing, in space logistics, flying hardware around cislunar space, there's a lot for actually very little government money that could help again, because your goal is to help shift the calculus for the more of the private money to come in, which keeps the, the discipline and the efficiency of the market in play versus creating a new military industrial complex. Aside from the zero G, zero tax on the, on the tax side, are there other things that the government can do to affect the, the cost of capital to change the net present value calculus? Well, one of the things, and again, this was in the 1930s, the government signed up to, to for the, it was the Airmail Act, and the government would fly airmail in each airplane, taking up excess cargo space to help make the airlines profitable. And uh, God bless Colonel Felt out at AFRL, 
You know, they just did this deal for suborbital starship. Oh my God, that is such a great idea. And uh, suborbital cargo transportation, uh, which was, for those who don't know, the very first contract that DARPA ever signed in 1958 was for suborbital human transportation of Marines into a post-nuclear strike. So same concept, little different application, but to buy services. You know, right now, you know, we, we need to avoid a space Pearl Harbor. What is some of the stuff we can do? Well, maybe put a backup version of the National Command Authority out in L5 to make it to where our adversaries, because if you look at the way our principal adversary looks at war, is that to build up capabilities, build up capabilities, and then crescendo because you're so much more dominant now that you can either A, win without a shot, or if you have to win with shots, it's it's shock and awe, and you just take them out. And if we can set up everything to where we're not going to be vulnerable to something like that, we were just we were just damn lucky that all three of our Pacific aircraft carriers left Pearl Harbor the day before the attack. If that hadn't happened, World War II would have gone a completely different direction. You know, speaking of our chief competitor, I often feel when I look at the Chinese space program that they're sort of executing the Moonrush program, that they must have read your and Paul Smutis's work. And, you know, it really seems to me like when you look at what they've laid out, They have an industrial vision, and you've written eloquently about the need for a lunar industrial facility. And that's, you know, there's some shades of nuance between going back to the moon for some permanent presence and a lunar industrial facility. Do you think that the United States has the, you know, the the right moon rush vision? And if not, what would be the modifications to it? 2024 is the only way we're going to modify it, really. The, and you're right, um, Dr. John Lewis, who wrote the book Mining the Sky, and I reference him a lot, and John is one of my mentors. John spent years lecturing at Beijing University. He was an invited lecturer. Guess what he talked about? Somebody there listened. And if you take a look at the broad historical flowing of the currents of time, the China made perhaps the greatest mistake in the past 2,000 years uh, of national power when they burned the ships of Zing He. We burned the ships of Apollo for the same reason in 1972. We have to take care of people here on the earth. If we can put a man on the moon, we can you know, solve poverty, cure cancer, blah, blah, blah. We did the same thing. This, that the Chinese emperors did to Zing He, we did to Apollo. The fortunate thing is half a century later, we still have the ability to correct that mistake. And I kind of jokingly said that, but I don't know if we have anyone in national leadership and national power, the ability to execute on a vision in, in our government. I, you know, we have some friends and you and I and some of our friends in government, and I don't want to name names right now, understand and agree with our vision and understand and agree with all of these things that we've been saying. But at the same time, it has to be the people at the top. And, you know, we were lucky last administration that Mr. Trump would give, you know, you want to do that? Go do it. And he'd put someone in charge that knows how to do stuff. Let's just dramatize this for the uninitiated, right? So when you say our vision, the space development vision, can you describe what is that vision and how do you contrast it with the more traditional destination focused, you know, mission or mindset? It's actually pretty easy. How can you diagnose between the two? How do you know? It's easy. It's real easy. NASA wants an an Antarctic research station on the moon. Not really. They really want one on Mars, and and they're being forced into giving lip service to one on the moon. Um, NASA wants 
you know, they want Mark Watney. They want Mark Watney, the great, you know, the botanist that saves Mars uh, and scientist and science, cyber science uber alles. Our friends in China, they want to build an industrial facility. The end of the day, Antarctic or industry, you know, science or, or industry and science is wonderful and science is a predicate and science is exceptionally important, but it's not the raison d'etre. It's not the reason for being for the space program. And it can't be because space is so much bigger than that. And if we're not getting that, guess who is getting it? And if they execute on it, then, you know, it, it, there is a very large possibility that the reverses of the past 500 years that China has faced, we will face in the next 500 years by not taking advantage of our advantages and doing what we know we can do in space and on the moon and on Mars and in the asteroid belt. So, you know, let's, you know, you've hit a very important, you know, point, uh, which I was going to ask, which was, you know, okay, there's this vision out there, but why us, you know, why America, why should we care, you know, if the Chinese are well, you know, is there anything to fear about the, the rise of the rest? Well, I know that mindset is out there uh, among some of the people, even we know and love, ask the Taiwanese people right now that just had 39 fighter jets fly at Taiwan, the potential hegemon of the future, uh, makes our warlike tendencies appear mild in comparison. And if you look at the history, the long history, there's a very large gap in terms of the value of human life, the value of those who are different between the East and the West. We, you know, there are many, and I'm going to veer into a direction here, you, you read things like the 619 Project and the United States is evil because we had slavery. Yes, we did. And it was a terrible thing. And 340,000 white Americans gave their lives to end it. Europe and the 300,000 years of human existence, the European and Western civilization and the sacrifice of those lives, including my great-grandfather's brother at Vicksburg, took slavery off the table for the first time in human history. I don't care how long human civilization lives. That's a shining moment in human history. And we did that. Our ancestors did that. My great-grandfather drove the trains that carried Grant's troops to Pitt's Landing, to Shiloh. And they fought and died for what they believed in, which was to end a terrible, terrible thing. We should have done it without that. But, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. But our it, look at the history. Look at the comparison. Look at Tibet versus Mexico. You know, it's just the way it is. And it's not hard to see. So what would be the, clearly, you know, the PRC has laid out a, a very stepwise function to get a logistics system to the moon, to create, to empower themselves, to, you know, do uh, resource prospecting with a, a keen eye to develop industrial processes, to do you know, 3D printing with a you know, broader mission to industrialize the moon. How would we have to modify Artemis to put the United States really on the right track? What, would the goals need to change? Would the, what would you need to expand? What would you need to do differently? How would we need to modify either what NASA is doing or what others are doing as part of it to, you know, to accomplish what, as you put, you know, may be close to an existential, certainly, you know, to our, our place and the place of freedom, both on earth and wherever else humanity might go. Well, it's actually not much, to be honest. It's in, again, uh, the key enablement was the selection of the starship for the HLS. So, and this kind of goes to what could government do is that instead of the sorties to different places on the moon, which is the current plan, and only one per year, and they're only staying for six days, make uh, the first human landing, let them stay there a year and let them start building up a base. And again, 
have the, in the same manner that we're doing now, these public-private partnerships, to have private companies bring in, says, you know, okay, we're sending one starship there. We pre-emplace supplies to where a crew could stay there for a year, building up capabilities. But at the same time, they go, okay, uh, large conglomerate, uh, if you want to do some materials research on the moon, land here at the base, we will, you can have some land over here next to our base. You build your facility. You do what you want to do over here. And the NASA science people, they're there. This helps amortize their cost. And again, instead, right now, they're looking at six crew days a year over 10 years, that's 60 days in 10 years. And it's it's t- literally something like five or $6 billion a mission. But just think if Starship was going there once a month and you could do that. And I've kind of done a preliminary estimate, probably $300 million to put hundred tons on the moon. That becomes very interesting. And so it it is somewhat of a policy change. It doesn't necessarily... <clears throat> excuse me, you don't necessarily have to increase NASA's budget to $40 billion a year. You just do things that help enable private enterprise and our allies, our European allies, the Japanese allies. Japan is now, the Artemis Accords were awesome. Bring, okay, here it is. Bring private enterprise into the Artemis Accords. You know? I think that would be very cool. And I think that right there and zero G, along with zero G, zero tax to, to help flip the bit on the investment, uh, make the investment horizon as long as they want to make it 20 years be best uh, and just go for it. And, and I think these are very small, but right now, NASA is driven entirely by the science. And you know, that's okay. NASA's has more from, since the Apollo era, basically into the NSF of space. NASA now has outsourced their private in-space vehicles to private enterprise. So private enterprise is going to end up taking over that. So let it happen. Let this evolution play itself out. Let our policy now go beyond just science. If people want to stay at the gateway, okay. People want to put private modules on the gateway, go for it. So these things right here are very small policy differences that could have a near immediate effect in a very positive manner for space. And oh, by the way, Elon just cashed out $26 billion worth of stock. He might want to put a dollar or two into it. Let's talk about what we can imagine going forward. If we made the right move, and if this played out, when you think about a mature lunar industrial ecosystem, how many decades in the future are you thinking? And describe for me what that might look like. What is, what are the, you know, How many facilities are we talking about? You know, how many people do you think might be involved? What's the scale? Um, I think you had mentioned, you know, before we actually got on the call that you had talked to somebody who said, oh, we're not worried about scale on this at all, you know, based on what they do terrestrially. But, you know, let's talk a bit about scale and maturity and what that might look like. 100 people in less than 10 years. With just very small changes in policy, I am quite sure that we could have 100 people on the moon for probably 10 to $20 billion worth of private investment. You know, we had this activity at, uh, at then Draper Fisher Jurvetson with Steve Jurvetson in 2014. And Steve said then, I've got friends and Steve's a, a venture capital billionaire. And he said, I've got friends that will put up enough money for $5 billion for a lunar base. Can we do it? We said, yes. Even then, even pre-Starship. With Starship, not a problem. And in this discussion I just had today, major oil companies spent $38 billion in Australia to build one offshore uh, liquefied natural gas terminal. $38 billion. Rio Tinto spends $7.3, billion for a single mine. The scale that we're talking about is financeable today. And so easily 100 people, I see multiple facilities starting at the poles, but as soon as the nuclear power systems become available, which I think they will be in the next five years, 
for 40, 100 kilowatts, maybe even a megawatt. There's many other locations on the moon. There's different sites on the moon that we already know. Like there's areas on the near side that have 11% titanium in the soil with 20% iron in the soil. Many, 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 many minerals. And guess where our friends from across the Western Pond just landed their last latest lander in that area of high titanium concentration. And guess what? They just made oxygen on the moon. No water required. And so it's we, we can transform this. Easily have 100 people, 10,000 people five to 10 years after that. Utterly transformative. And this gets us Mars at the same time because the scale of capital there easily allows us uh, Elon's dream of putting people on Mars in a sustainable manner because we have an ecosystem. We have the Earth, we have the moon, we have, you know, we have the inners part of the expanse that we can have it, it within, you know, 10 or 15 years. That is something to be excited about and that's something to be hopeful about. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for your time tonight and I look forward to our next conversation. Peter, we're going to do it again, buddy. Take care. You too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening. 